0: Like Ben said, I've, I've been here for almost eight years, and uh, really some of the best things that have happened to me in my life have happened here amongst you guys. Um, I became a believer here. A couple guys took me under their wing and started sharing the gospel with me, taught me the scriptures, taught me what it means to be a believer, and and uh, I became a Christian. And I also met um, my most favorite person in the world, Mallory, my wife, and we don't have a baby coming, as, as Ben uh, alluded, but... Um, but yeah, I, I actually want to start off uh, sharing a story about our wedding day. We actually got married right here in this building, and uh, we were the first couple to, to get married here. And as the guy, I pretty much had just one job. My one job was to build some stairs that would go right here so that Mallory could walk down the aisle and that I could walk up here and we could both uh, say, I do. That was my only job. But there's a problem with me, um, if you know anything about me at all, um, unless it comes out of an Ikea box and there's a manual, like a really detailed manual with pictures, I'm no good for building anything. So a couple people knowing this about me, as time grew closer, they told me to call somebody uh, that went here at Integrity. He was a A woods worker by trade, like a a craftsman, master craftsman, he'd been doing this his whole life. They told me this guy would be more than happy to build these stairs for me. I just had to call him. That's all I had to do. But of course, I dismissed the offer, right? I mean, how hard could building stairs be? I mean, they're everywhere. Everywhere you walk in, there's stairs right there. I could do this. Um, But the story plays out a couple days before the wedding me and some of my most dedicated friends, uh, up till after midnight trying to build these stairs in Kirk Birch's garage, and literally all we had to show for after that was just mangled, destroyed scraps of wood that we had nothing. So the next morning, a new Eddie emerged. This, this Eddie realized he couldn't build these stairs, none of his friends could build these stairs. He had nothing left to give except to give a call to this master craftsman, and uh, this guy was so nice. He came over, and within uh, within just four hours, he had built these uh, beautiful stairs, and and it was it was perfect. You see, those stairs they were as good as built if I trusted in the hands of the master craftsman. They were as good as built, but instead, I thought I could do it. I could build these stairs, and I proved. Nothing, except I couldn't do it. And so I think this story um, is a perfect illustration of today's passage. I mean, absolutely perfect. I mean, we've seen, we'll see here that Abram has been given a promise by God that he would be given a great nation, and he'd be given a land for this nation to dwell in forever. You guys remember that from the last couple sermons, no doubt. But we see here that both he and Sarai take God's promise into their own incapable hands, and they fail to produce God's promise on their own. And so I want you to see, the big, the big idea here from this sermon, I want you to take away from here, is that any time we try to do, in our own human efforts, what only God says he can do will always fail, 100% of the time. Will always fail. And so before we start, I just want to let you know that we're going to start off, we're going to put a lot of pieces out on the table zone in with me. Don't zone out, because all those pieces are going to come together at the end. It'll make sense, I promise. Just, just hold on, okay? But first, let's let let's kind of review a little bit of what we've talked about last week with, with Abram. If you remember, in chapter uh, 15 of Genesis, uh, Abram had just encountered God in an absolutely amazing way. We saw Abram, he wanted to to be reaffirmed of God's commitment to his promise. I mean, we we kind of got the picture that Abram was really shaky in his faith. And so God comes and he reaffirms to Abram his promise in an absolutely spectacular way. And he covenants to him that he will accomplish his promise. And it's an amazing description in chapter 15. I mean, we see God come to Abram in a fire, basically, and promises by his own life, the everlasting God promises by his own life that he will accomplish his promise through Abraham. I mean, Abraham had like a mountaintop experience, just absolutely amazing. And so you'd expect in the next chapter, chapter 16, to see an Abraham that is just on fire, with total faith in God's promise. But in fact, we see the exact opposite. We see in Abram, that doesn't take God at his word but tries to accomplish God's promise through his own feeble human efforts. So let's, let's read chapter 16. We'll read the first four verses uh, starting in verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, Now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. So we see another challenge to Abraham's faith in God's promise. Because time has gone by, and it appears to both Sarai and Abram that God has closed her womb as there's no child, there's no heir, there's no great nation, there's nothing, just barrenness and old age to show for God's promise so far. And so the idea, it comes to Sarai... Why not just have your son, Abram, through another woman? A surrogate pregnancy, why not? So she gives this solution to her husband, Abram, and he agrees with his wife. So Abram marries Hagar, one of the household servants that happened to be a slave woman from Egypt, and she conceived a child. So Abram is taking God's promise into his own hands again by marrying a slave woman named Hagar to get the nation that God had promised to him. So let's keep reading. Pick up in verse 5. And Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from? And where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I shall surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord, who spoke to her, You are a seeing God. And she said, Truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called ber lahai Roy. I looked up how to pronounce that. I couldn't couldn't do that on my own. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. So, so what we see from that big chunk of Scripture here is Hagar has conceived a child, and she's taunting Sarah with her pregnancy because pregnancy was everything back then in that culture. If you couldn't have children, your value and status was much reduced. So she's taunting Sarah because she's infertile. And Sarai convinces Abram to kick her out. And God meets Hagar on the way back to Egypt, and he tells her to go back to Sarai and submit to her and endure all her taunting. And so there's so much here in this this big chunk of Scripture we can go into, but we just don't have time to. So I want to focus on the last two verses, 15 through 16. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So Hagar has her child, and Abram names the son Ishmael, essentially identifying Ishmael from his perspective, as the heir to God's promise. That's probably what Abram thought. You see, Abram and Sarai most likely thought that the product of them taking matters into their own hands was the heir according to God's promise. And how wrong could they be? We know this for several reasons. One, because the promise that God gave to Hagar about Ishmael is completely different than the promise that he would give to Isaac later. Completely different promise. But another thing is if we look forward a couple chapters later in Genesis chapter 17, we see God confronts Abram's unbelief again by telling him that the promise will not come through Ishmael, as he thinks, but rather a son from the womb of Sarai, which would be an absolute miracle because she's infertile. And they're old. So it would take an absolute miracle, and they're right. Abram and Sarai completely, they just start laughing when God says this because they don't believe it. They take a miracle. And this is important because God will name this miracle child that can only come from his work Isaac. Abram and Sarai couldn't produce this child like they did Ishmael. It had to come from God. Just as Ishmael was born from their own fleshly works, Isaac will be born of the promise of God. So are you, are you tracking so far? It's going to start coming together here. So in summary, we see that this passage from Abram, about Abram and Sarai, that they were left with a solemn promise by God that he will give Abram a great nation and a great land according to his promise and his work but Sarah and Abram they take this this thought and they thought that they could help God's promise along with a dash of their own human efforts through his through Abram's marriage to Hagar So is that is that all we can take away from chapter 16 here I mean at face value it seems like a good story with a with a good moral truth we can take away right don't trust yourself trust God the end But later, later in the Bible, we see that this passage is about so, so much more than just Abram and Sarai taking matters into their own hands. Paul tells us in the book of Galatians that this this picture, this this story of, of Sarai and Hagar and Abram is actually a picture of the gospel. It's actually a picture of the gospel. Namely salvation through faith alone in Christ Jesus, not by works of the law. So, that's an absolutely crucial thing that we have to understand today. And so Paul teaches this in the book of Galatians, and he uses that, narra- that narrative of Sarai and Hagar as an allegory, as an allegory to teach us that crucial spiritual truth of salvation through faith alone in Christ. And And so an allegory, um, we we don't use that too much right now in our normal conversation allegories. There's no like allegory function on your iPhone. There's no allegory emoji. There's none of that. So an allegory is a story um, or a picture that can reveal a hidden meaning. And in this case, Paul uses the story of Sarai and Hagar to illustrate the difference between works of the law and faith in Christ to be made right with God. So before we dive into this allegory, I want to fill you in on the context of Galatians because there's so much that's happening here. And you have to understand the flow of thought in Galatians to understand the allegory. And you especially have to understand the futility of the law to save you. So Paul had preached the gospel to some people in the province of Galatia. So he preached the gospel to them, and the gospel took root in their, in their hearts, in their lives, and they began to flourish in their faith and understanding of Christ. And as Paul left, he heard some news that there were some people, some false teachers, that began to infiltrate the church. And they began sharing things and teaching things that sounded like, like this, like, Christ is the Messiah. But he still wants to save you by you obeying the Mosaic law, the covenant that God made to the Israelites at Mount Sinai. He still wants you to obey the law. That's how he's going to save you. Or they would say things like, you know, you have to finish what Christ started in your life. And you have to finish it by obeying the law. In short, they were spreading a false gospel. We would call that legalism. Have you heard that sermon preached? Maybe you preach that false gospel to yourself often. But this is a message that says, faith in what Jesus has done for you, it's not enough. Christ needs you to garnish his death with some of your own efforts. So Paul makes a claim that the way we're made right with God is through faith in Christ, not by works of the law. So he spends so much time explaining the all-sufficiency of Christ and the insufficiency of ourselves for our salvation. And he makes the point that the law was our teacher, he says, to help us understand that the answer is not found in us, but we must trust in Christ. So as you might continually try to keep the law, you'll fail. And as you fail, you will grow more. You'll grow deeper under the curses of the law. For your disobedience? And the purpose of the law then would be to help you see the helplessness in fixing yourself. The law is meant to make you see your need for Christ through your failing. It was never meant to save. So why would you go back to the law, Paul's saying, to the Galatians? It was never meant to save you. Why are you going there as an answer to your sin problem? only going to make things worse. The answer is Christ, Paul says. Paul says this in another way in Romans 3 um, verse 20. He says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. The law will not produce you being able to be right before God. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And in, here in Galatians chapter 3, verse 22, he says, But the Scripture, which he means here, the law, but the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. So you see, we will always fail if we try to do what only God himself he can do. So this brings us to Galatians 4, a climactic end of Paul's teaching uh, to the Galatians, where he shows that the false teachers were wrong. They were wrong about two things. One, that the old covenant, which was a works-based covenant, it never worked because no one could be completely faithful to obeying the entire law. The second thing is he says you have to get rid of the whole idea that, that your works... Will make you right with God. He says that idea and the old covenant law, they're gone, completely gone. They're out of the picture now. Christ is here. All that is sufficient for your salvation is faith alone in Christ Jesus. So as we get into this allegory, Paul brings us right here to this allegory to to explain this spiritual truth. And the characters in this allegory should be really familiar to you. So let's read. Galatians chapter 4, 21, uh, starting in verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abram had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh, while the son of the f- free woman was born through promise. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those the one who has a husband. Got it? Make sense? Well, the first thing we see here is there's two sons. One was born by a slave woman, and the other was born by a free woman. We we then see that the slave woman, which is the old covenant law of works, can only produce children that are in slavery themselves. The free woman, which is the new covenant of faith, will produce children that are free. Paul then adds another layer to this allegory, and he says that the son born by the slave woman will produce was produced by the flesh, meaning works or human efforts. The son born by the free woman, on the other hand, was born through the promise, that is, not by human efforts. So hopefully things are adding up for you here. Paul then reveals the identities of the woman and, and names the slave woman as Hagar and the free woman as Sarah. So who was born of Hagar? It was Ishmael, born by Abram and Hagar when they tried to work out God's promise for themselves. He's the product of human effort, human works. And who was the, who was the child of Sarah? Sarah. It was Isaac, the miracle baby, the child born by the promise of God according to his work. So Paul is saying that that just as Sarah can only produce free children because she's a free woman, so the gracious covenant promised to Abraham and fulfilled in Christ produces children that are free. That is, they're not under the law. They're under grace. Hagar can only produce children born into slavery, condemned under the law. So let's read on, starting in verse 28. Now you brothers, now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does that scripture say? cast out the slave woman and her son for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman so brothers we are not children of the slave but of the free woman Paul says to the Galatians you are like Isaac you're not like Ishmael you're a child of the promise you're believers in Christ and you're not under the condemnation of the law But I want to focus on verse 30. We didn't get a chance to see this earlier in Genesis. But Paul quotes later in Genesis where Abraham and Sarah ultimately cast out Hagar and her son Ishmael after Isaac was born because the promise had come. Isaac had come. So they cast out Hagar and Ishmael. And Paul makes the grand point of this allegory. He says that the old covenant law, it's over. The believer now, you must cast out the law, cast out Hagar, and cast out Ishmael. Cast it out. The law is over. If you are a child of the law, then you can't inherit the promise of Abraham. And what's the promise to Abraham? The blessing of justification by faith alone in Christ Jesus. Justification meaning being made right with God. In fact, you can't inherit any blessing from God if you're of the slave woman, if you haven't cast out the law. So friend, will you do what Paul urges us to do and cast away the heavy, heavy burden of the law and accept the, the gift of Christ as your salvation? So, This leaves us with an essential question, right? How do we cast out the law? How do we cast out the law? How do we put into practice this this The point of Paul's allegory. How do, we, how do we do that? How do we try not to work out God's promise of salvation like Sarai and Abraham did? How do we not fall back into legalism like the Galatians were tempted to do? We do this by believing on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we allow nothing between us and his precious blood. What are some of the things that you think might stand between you and the precious blood of Christ? You might think, I've looked at too much pornography in my past. There's no way. There's no way that, that I can have Christ's precious blood shed for me. Or you might say that, I've, I'm addicted to everything. <laughs> Or I'm the most angry person I know. You might have a list of sin that could go 30 pages. We might think that those things would be what would stand between us and the precious blood of Christ. But I hope you know that your sin, that long list of sin that you could write out, is the prerequisite for grace. The biggest thing that stands between us and casting out the law, it's not our sin. It's our own prideful self, our confidence in our flesh that says we can deal with this sin on this list ourselves. We don't need Christ. So will you answer the call of Christ himself when he says in Matthew 11, 28, when he says come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and i will give you rest take my yoke upon you and learn from me for i am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest from your rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light if you're tired of laboring under the law. If you're tired of standing in the way of Christ's precious blood, look to Christ. Come to Christ. Throw off your works, the flesh, and your attempt to be made right with God and, keep, and trying to keep yourself in his graces. That's a heavy load. So where do you fall in this allegory? Are you a legalist who thinks that Christ isn't enough for you? Let me ask you a question. Are you really going to stand before Christ on the cross and look at him and say, you're not enough. You're not enough to cover my sins. That what you need is you need me to garnish your death with some of my good works, with some of my efforts some of my self-punishments because I feel bad. That's what you need. Your death isn't enough. I want to remind you, if that's you, I want to remind you of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his all-sufficiency for you personally. And if you don't know Christ at all, I also want you to see that here is Christ who died on the cross and his death can be for you. The gospel was God's plan before the world even existed to make you his child, his own. He foreshadowed throughout the whole Old Testament, the whole history of mankind, the coming of a man who would suffer for you He would represent you before God. He would intercede for you before God. He would conquer all the evil in this world, and he would conquer the evil that you see in your own heart. And he would lay his life aside, and he would sacrifice himself for you. He was the one promised to Abraham that would be born and that would be a blessing to the earth. And through him, you could be a part of God's own people. Heirs according to the promise of Abraham. The God of the universe became a man like you and me, and his name was Jesus. He lived a life without a single sin. And though he was tempted in every single way that you're tempted, he endured that temptation and he endured it to the cross. He didn't sin. He was perfect in every way. He bore the rejection of his own people. He was abandoned by his closest friends. He was whipped, he was bruised, he was mocked, he was scorned, and then he was hung on a tree. And worst of all, he experienced a measure of torment that you and I could never understand. God the Father turned his face away from him, from his own son. And in that moment, Christ bore the wrath of every sin you have ever committed. On himself. For what? That whole list that you could write of all your sins, he died for. He bore the wrath of God for you. Christ died. That isn't just something we read in our Bible, it is, but it's a historical fact. Christ died. His blood was shed for you on that tree. He was slaughtered for your sins. And three days later, he rose from the dead to a new life, proving that his sacrifice was enough for the atonement of your sins. And God accepted his sacrifice as enough for you personally. That was affirmed by his resurrection. It was finished. And now Christ sits in heaven, the right hand of God, his rightful place, it's done. There's no need for any more sacrifice because it was completely paid for by him on the cross once and for all. You and I don't need to try to drag Christ back up to the cross every time we sin. It's done. It was enough. You see, the law will only hurl more and more curses on us when we sin try and we fail to obey. But Christ, he became the curse. He took all the requirements of perfection on him and he died. God Almighty proclaimed, it was enough for you. It was finished. It was complete. There is nothing more to add. Ephesians chapter 2. starting in verse 8 through 10, says, For by God's grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. God did this, and he did it in such a way that it was only him who could do it so that we can't boast, and it's done. So tell me, what more can you do to add to what Christ has already done? Why do we think that we can assume the role of Christ and provide a sacrifice with our own hands that could accomplish only what Christ could accomplish? What more can you do that could make him forgive you of sin? what more can you add that would be more delightful to God than the own, his own sacrificial death of his son? We give ourselves a lot of credit. But perhaps you don't struggle so much with the idea that, that it's by faith alone that you're saved. Perhaps you're more like me. And you think that after you sin, you have to earn your way back into God's good graces. And let me tell you from personal experience that that is a heavy, heavy, heavy burden to bear. It wasn't until I came here, there are probably 15, 20 guys that have sat down with me and tried to make me and help me see this truth because I would not believe it for so many years. Perhaps last night you got into a horrible fight with your husband or your wife And you're overwhelmed with guilt. Perhaps last night that you looked at pornography and you looked at it again, you thought this was over, and guilt just piles up. Perhaps you messed up with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, and both of you are sitting here in complete guilt, wondered if you could even come here today. Perhaps. Right after Thanksgiving, you encountered your bitterness again towards your dad or your mom at the Thanksgiving table. And you feel guilty for some of the things that you feel about them or some of the things that you said about them. Or perhaps, after the Thanksgiving meal, you've come face to face again with an eating disorder that just for some reason... You just feel ashamed of, and you feel guilty for, and you can't shake it. Maybe you just feel completely consumed by fear and anxiety. Maybe you just feel ashamed and guilty, and no matter what you do, you can't get rid of that guilt. You can't. You can't. And you're tempted to think like the Galatians that you have to earn God's favor and acceptance for you after you have blown it. Where will you run now, believer? Where will you run? Where are you running now? Please don't run back to the law or the false idea that your works can solve this problem, that your works can get rid of this guilt, that your works can make God happy with you. God has given you a portion and measure of grace that far exceeds your need of grace. He has an infinite stockhold of grace that he gives to you. As we sing grace greater than our sin, God gives us grace not according to our need, but according to his infinite possession. There is enough grace for you. There's grace for all your sin. Look, if you are in Christ, then 100% of God's wrath has been completely poured out for you on Christ. 100%. Every time you sin, every sin that you've committed in the past and future, 100% paid for. 100%. It was truly and completely spent on Christ for you. You can rest from your works, because Christ has paid for your sin. And this is the most beautiful thing I want to share with you. I want to share this with you. Now, because all God's wrath is gone on you, all of it was on Christ, now the only thing that you have to bear from Christ, from God, is his grace and mercy that's the only thing left for you to bear if you are in Christ Jesus, if you have faith in him, if you believe that he's taken care of your sin problem. That's the only thing left for you. So now that heavy, heavy load of you working out God's promise of salvation for you, or God's promise of acceptance of you, all that energy, all that work, all that labor, all that pain... All your works can go towards enjoying and worshiping God, in obedience to His word, and resting in His grace. Imagine what you could do out of of the joy you can experience if all the effort you put into trying to to work your way into God's grace or work your way into heaven, you could spend towards just enjoying Him and living for Him. Be a game changer. But I want to go back. I want to go back to that original story I shared with you about those stairs. You see, that story too can be interpreted allegorically. There were two men. One man trusted in his own efforts to build those stairs. He tried and he tried and he tried and he failed. And he was more entrapped and ensnared in his own failure, left with nothing. The second man abandoned faith in himself. And he put his trust and his faith in the master craftsman, who in his time of need, he came and he built those stairs perfectly. He built those stairs for that second man. Friend, which person are you today? Are you the one who tries to work by his own efforts and only end up proving to God that it's impossible? Or are you the person who takes God at his word and trusts him to build those steps for him? Will you be a child of Hagar, born into slavery, works of the law, with nothing but the condemnation of the law against you? Will you be the child of promise, born by Sarah, living in grace and freedom from your sin in Christ Jesus? I hope you'll be that one. Let's pray.